You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. sermon text today is Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You can be seated. Please bow our heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, what we have not give us, what we know not teach us, and who we are not make us, I ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please find a Bible and open it to Psalm 53. There should be some things I want you to see in the text there uh, and in a nearby text as well. <clears throat> My name's Scott, just for those of you who might be new joining us. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redeeming Grace Church. And uh, we're really glad you're here. We have started, uh, as of last week, a series through the Psalms over the summer. So I did 43 last week, 53 this week, 63, 73. We'll be doing that uh, into August. And so we're really glad you're here. I hope you get a lot out of this. Uh, one of the challenges I gave to you guys last week was to uh, be reading the, you know, the 10 Psalms in between each Psalm and up covering uh, almost all the Psalms over the summer. If you didn't do that last week, there's no reason you can't jump in this week. And uh, I know for me personally... I got a little bit in at the end of the week, and then I just crammed it all in at the end, uh, and that's okay. Some people need different rhythms than just weekly, you know, the little, the little uh, trickle over, over time, day after day. Some people, just a bigger, a bigger chunk, bigger dose. It doesn't matter how you go about it, but uh, I know it was really fruitful for me, and it actually helped me kind of in thinking about this message, so hopefully for those of you who did it as well, the same to you. So we're going to be in Psalm 53. <clears throat> Thank you, Bree, for already reading that for us. You see the title there, too, The Choir Master, according to Mahalath, a masculine of David. Again, those are some uh, like technical musical terms. Not exactly sure, entirely sure what they need, mean. They could denote the kind of tune that was to be played with this kind of song, the kind of feel about it, whatnot, maybe the rhythms. Uh, but here it is a psalm of David. And it begins here in verse 1. And really, the first three verses have some very, very stark things to say. Verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. The fool says in heart, there is no God. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says, this assertion, there is no God, is in fact treated in Scripture, not as some sort of like sincere, misguided conviction, but as an irresponsible gesture of defiance. In other words, it's not just mere intellectual atheism, which was basically impossible uh, until the Enlightenment. 
No one in the ancient world was, you know, like a, a philosophical atheist like we think of today. And so here the fool saying in his heart, there is no God, is not claiming some sort of like actual philosophical conviction that there is no, there's no God. He's saying, again, out of his heart, that he doesn't, he doesn't believe in a God, that there's, he's living that way in his actions, even though he might intellectually ascend or participate in the cultic activities of his society, he lives a life that proves that he's acting as if there's no God, there's no judge, no one's going to hold him accountable for his evil deeds. Why is it so foolish for us to confess that there is no God, deny God in our own hearts? Right? It's foolishness. It's not the evil man says there's no, there's no God. It's the fool says in his heart that there is no God. It's foolish because it's plain that there is a God, according to Scripture, Romans 1, 18 to 20, says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so it is foolish to live as if there's no God, because God's invisible attributes, his divine power, his eternal nature, are clearly seen and perceived in even creation. You don't even need the scriptures. You don't need the revelation of Christ himself to know that there is a God, to have the law written on your heart, to have your conscience convict you of sin and righteousness. And yet, millions of human beings live like this fool here, as if there was no God, that nothing in their life is ever going to catch up to them, that perhaps there's no purpose or meaning in their lives, that they can live however they want. Charles Spurgeon says this, the atheist is the fool preeminently and a fool universally. He would not deny God if he were not a fool by nature, right? That's what Romans 1 said. And having denied God, it is no marvel that he becomes a fool in practice. Sin is always folly. And as it is the height of sin to attack the very existence of the Most High, so it is also the greatest imaginable folly. And as it is the height of... Oh, I just said that. To say there is no God is to belie the plainest evidence which is obstinacy, to oppose the common consent of mankind, which is stupidity, to stifle consciousness, which is madness. If the sinner could by his atheism destroy the God whom he hates, there were some sense, although much wickedness, in his infidelity. But as denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man who is in it, so doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws." Nay, this atheism is a crime which much provokes heaven and will bring down terrible vengeance on the fool who indulges in it. 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. He claims in his heart, again, that there is no God. Romans 1 continues to describe this descent into madness, really. First of all, humans reject the creator, and choose to define right and wrong on their own, good and evil on their own accord. And so God gives them over to a darkened, foolish mind. 
And then they begin worshiping created things. Birds and beasts and creeping things. Man himself. And then he gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And having unnatural sexual relationships with one another. And then that descent further leads to a culture marked by this. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is a society three or four dams downstream from a rejection of God, from the folly of saying, there is no God, no one will judge me. This month, our, our culture is celebrating Pride Month. Right? If that upsets you, if you don't understand that, if you're not sure why that is, if you can't believe people are ignoring the clear commands of Scripture, it's, the seeds of that were planted generations ago. This is downstream of an ultimate seed of rejection of God, the fool saying in his heart, there is no God, and this is where it leads. They are corrupt, the psalmist says, David says in verse 1, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. Corrupt meaning perverted, destroyed, ruined, wasted, depraved, or spoiled. That's how the word gets translated across the Hebrew text. Abominable carries a sense of disgusting or detestable things, that failing to recognize and acknowledge God for who he is and living like he doesn't exist leads to disgusting destruction and wasted human lives. John Piper says, sin is so ugly and so offensive that the only remedy is the death of an infinitely worthy divine substitute. So ugly and so offensive that all human death, billions and billions of deaths, are owing to one sin. So ugly and so offensive that everlasting conscious torment is a just and proper response to it. So ugly and so offensive that it justifies the slaughter of the Canaanites because finally the iniquity of their generation was full. So ugly and so offensive that Jesus describes it in a parable as an unpayable debt 10,000 times 20 years wages. So ugly and offensive that God ordained 1,500 years of law covenant so that every mouth would be stopped and all would see that no human being will be justified by works of the law because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Ladies and gents, do we see sin as ugly as God sees it? Do we see it as corruption, abominable iniquity? Do we say with David, there is none who does good? Do we recognize this or do we give it a pass? A question arises from this text after verse 1, is David just talking about the fools or a larger group of people? Look at verse 2. God looks down from heaven now on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. This is reminiscent of a couple episodes like the flood, when God looked down on the children of man to see what was going on and recognized that his only thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. It's reminiscent of the Tower of Babel when God looks down after the flood, after the world has been cleansed, and they're back to their same old game, this imperial project to glorify man, 
and God looks down and judges it as evil as well. It's reminiscent of God's conversation with Abraham when God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, wait, 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 God, surely you won't do it if there's 50 righteous people in the city. God says, yep, I won't do it if there's 50. And he bargains with him, 40, yes, I won't do it if there's 40. 30, 20, he gets down to 10. God says, yeah, I won't destroy the city if I find 10 righteous people in it. And he destroys the city. After sending two angels to get Lot and his family out, there's now no righteous people in that city. Do we see that? Do we say, oh, there's some evil people out there and there's some good people out there? Alexander Shulchinsky says, if only we could just go out and find those evil people and get rid of them and then everything would be fine. Except the line of depravity of evil goes right through every human heart. And so we have to deal with our own sin, our own wickedness, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Looking at verse 3, this is God's sentence. This is what he finds when he looks down on the children of man to see if there are any who do us good. He says, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. It repeats the theme of verse 1 with a triple denunciation of any goodness in man. There is none righteous, no, not one. Spurgeon says the Hebrew phrase is an utter denial concerning any mere man that he of himself does good. Who could be more sweeping? This is the verdict of the all-seeing Jehovah who cannot exaggerate or mistake. As if no hope of finding a solitary specimen of a godly man among the unrenewed human family might be harbored for an instant. The Holy Spirit is not content with saying all and all together, but adds the crushing threefold negative, no, not one. So this judgment on the children of men just apply to God's enemies? No, I think not. Not only does the psalmist himself apply it to the whole human race, all the children of men, but Paul will actually quote this in Romans chapter 3 with the very purpose of establishing that all are lost under sin. Romans 3, 9 to 12, Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we the good guys and the evil people are out there? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then skipping down to chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Why will no human being declared, being be declared just before God by the basis of the law? Because no one keeps the law. We're all lawbreakers. There's this profound cognitive dissonance, this tension in our minds about human nature in our society. The psalmist here clearly denounces any sort of idea that there are good people in the world, and yet we don't seem to believe that. We say things like, ah, no one's perfect, which is an admittance that all of us fail to meet some sort of standard that's very close to the truth. But then we also write terrible songs that betray our real conviction and misdiagnose the problem. Three examples for you. Love this one. I got this from Michael Bird's commentary on Romans. Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, lauding and proud that he lived a life, his own choosing of good and evil. Here's the lyrics. 
regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more, I did it my way. Catchy tune, but Michael Bird says, in many ways, the title of this song aptly summarizes the nature of sin. Sin represents the attempt to displace God and the desire to deify the self. Humans deify their creator, sorry, defy their creator, shake their puny little fists at heaven, and say, I'll do it my way. Or try this one. Luke Bryan's, I believe all people are good. Terrible song. Here's the lyrics. I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Most people are good, or there is none righteous. No, not one. Lady Gaga's born this way. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in the glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself in regret. Just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Versus the words of our Lord, you must be born again. Or finally, John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. John Lennon's not a dreamer. He's deluded. The deadliest and most godless century in the history of humankind is 20 years in our rearview mirror. Here's what a century with no religion or no heaven above us looks like. 20 million killed in World War I, 18-year-olds buried in the mud and mire of Flanders and Field, 50 million killed in World War II in the name of Nazi socialism, entire cities wiped out with nuclear weapons, 64 million babies killed in their mother's womb in the United States in the name of my body, my choice, and the separation of church and state. 90 million killed by ideological civil wars in the name of atheistic communism. John Lennon's dream is a hellish nightmare. Mountains of schools, rivers of human blood, when we believe there is no one above us to judge us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're not good. Human beings are evil. We can see it in fallen human civilizations like I just laid out. Or we can just look to our own children. Kids, listen up. I got some questions for you. I was talking to the esteemed professor of theology, Rachel Dodd, the other week. And she made this, she made this remark. Anyone who doesn't believe in total depravity has never had kids. Okay, kids, teenagers, youth, let me ask you these questions. When did mom and dad teach you how to lie so that you could bend the truth. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Did anyone teach you to bite your brother so that you could get a toy that you want? Did anyone have to teach you to be sneaky and hide things so that you could avoid getting in trouble? No one taught you that. We don't put kids in this like 
family environments and then they turn out rotten, they're born rotten. And we've spent 18 years trying to just make sure they don't go to jail when they go out of the house. If you don't have kids, just wait. And so God looks down from heaven on humanity and he doesn't find anyone righteous. No, not one. And so given that, the rest of the psalm actually doesn't make a lot of sense on face value. Look at verse 4 with me. The psalmist has just decreed, no one, on no one on the face of the earth is righteous. We are all enemies of God. And then he says this, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? God's attention turns now to the enemies of his people. Not just all people, but specifically to the enemies of his people. Their folly and their evil directs them to use or to eat up God's people through abuse, oppression, or tyranny. Verse 5, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you and you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Evil foreigners who have besieged God's people in Jerusalem, they have encamped against them. They're now put to flight. There's terror where there was no terror. God's people were weak, puny, pathetic, shut up in the walls of Jerusalem, and God himself brought his power to bear on their enemies to scatter their bones and drive them away and save his people. Verse 6, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here's Zion. It's the name of one of the hills in Jerusalem, but it becomes uh, a name for just the whole city in general. The city of Jerusalem is Zion. Jacob and Israel are parallelisms for the whole nation, God's covenant people. And the translation here is, Oh God, would you save us? Deliver us, restore our fortunes. And so here's the question that came to my mind as I'm thinking through this text this last week. How on earth can the psalmist, who has lumped himself in with all the children of men, he has applied the label, no, not one, to himself. And yet, he can believe that God's terrifyingly hostile towards his enemies, and yet, not going to turn the same wrath and injustice against him as well. When both are just as sinful as the other. God's people, their enemies, looks down on the children of men, there is none righteous, no, not one. How come God is picking on their enemies and not treating them both the same? It's one word, mercy. God's people have never deserved any of God's good gifts or blessings throughout history. God's people have always been cut from the same cloth as every other human on the planet. Abraham was an idol worshiper from Babylon. Joseph's brothers, those founding fathers of the nation of Israel, sold their brother into slavery. Moses was a murderer. David an adulterer. Paul a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. Peter was a coward. None of the heroes in the Bible are good people. God's people are just as sinful as the rest of the human race. There's only one difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. Mercy. Kids, think about this, right? All the heroes you learned about in Sunday or school or you read about in your, uh, your children's storybook Bible, they're sinners just like you. They're sinners just like your parents. And so what's the only difference between God's people and their enemies? Mercy. There's one cry, one prayer 
that separates sinners who are God's enemies and sinners who are made friends of God. It's a great example of it just across the page on Psalm 51. I want you to look just at the first two verses with me. Sorry, just the first, yeah, first two verses. This is the plea for mercy. This is how you are transferred from enemy of God to friend of God. Not by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, not by eliminating all the sin in your life, not by being perfect, not by keeping the law. This is how you do it. Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. It's just another word for sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David repents here. This is after the episode with Bathsheba where he took someone's wife who was not his own and then had her husband murdered. Just as wicked as the enemies of God here in Psalm 53. And yet David knows he's a friend of God because he cries out for mercy. Exodus 34, 6 is the most quoted passage in the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament requotes it over and over and over again, about 20-some times. It's a beautiful description of God's own character. So the Old Testament, the Bible, when it wants you to think about God and his character and who he is, it overwhelmingly wants you to think of these words. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see the tension even in that? He forgives, but he doesn't clear the guilty. Then who are the guilty? Everyone's guilty. There is none righteous. No, not one. So what's the difference? God covers his people with righteousness, clothes them with righteousness, cleans them when they cry out to him for mercy, and he does not count their sins against them. How can God forgive? Psalm 53, verse 6, because salvation has come out of Zion. Just as Psalm 53, verse 6 ended with that cry, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Salvation did come in the God-man Jesus Christ. There is none righteous, no, not one, until Jesus Christ came and fulfilled God's law perfectly. And then he went riding into Zion, into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he came marching back out with a cross on his back to take our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Dear brother or sister in Christ, if you sinned this morning, if you sinned this afternoon, if you sin tomorrow morning, if you sin on Wednesday, in thought, word, and deed, by what you do or by what you fail to do, you have an advocate with the Father. If you're in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. You've been clothed in His righteousness. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves, but we have a righteous older brother to plead our case. And we have a God full of mercy, willing to forgive, who asks us to call us Father. If you're not in Christ, if you're still playing the fool, if you're still living for yourself, living as if there was no God, I was that fool once. So what's the only difference between you and me? The only difference is that I cried out for mercy. 
and nothing stopping you from doing the same. Acts 2, Peter preaches this beautiful sermon to Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the holiday of Pentecost. And he basically ends with, you crucified Jesus, the promised king that God was sending to save us. You murdered him. And they cry out, says they were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Just like David, cry for mercy and be washed from your sin. Psalm 51. Surrender yourself to the righteous man that's ever walked the earth. Surrender to Jesus and you will receive mercy. And so turning back to Psalm 53, this is why in the first three verses, David can, as he explains, and then the voice of God comes in in verse two, can say, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen away. And yet, even though he's lumping himself into that same group, he can still count on God as his friend because of one word, mercy. David has received the mercy of God. David has been washed clean of his sin and given a new heart. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. If you're in Christ, salvation and mercy have come for you. So I wanted to give you about 60 seconds to think on these things for yourself and our musicians are going to come up and lead us in one last song. I want you to meditate on this truth that you're an enemy of God. You're born into this world raging against God and calling out in foolishness, there is no God. I'll do it my way. I was born this way. And yet, if you're in Christ, God himself has caused you to be born again so that you can say, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. Here's this beautiful verse. This is what I want you to meditate on, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. The only reason, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, the church in the world, is simply one group has cried out for mercy and the other hasn't. Listen to this beautiful passage. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You didn't do anything. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, none of us deserve this lavish grace. None of us deserve this. Christ did not deserve the cruel torture and death on the cross, and yet he took it for us anyways. Please, Lord, as we ourselves struggle against our own sin to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, help us to see a merciful God who is quick to forgive, who loves to forgive, who thought we were worth sending his own son. I pray for anyone in this room not a believer who has not received mercy. God, call them out of darkness into your marvel. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.